Welcome, welcome, welcome everyone to this episode of Tech Cars Machines. We are coming to you from Las Vegas, where yours truly and 182,000 of my close friends are part of a boiling, roiling mass of techies that descend on this city the first calendar week of the year for the Consumer Electronics Show, or CES. You can probably hear in the background quite literally the pulse of the show that's going on and, and um, will be probably part of the backdrop of this recording in its entirety. The Tech Cars Machines podcast keeps growing in popularity. This fact, and I like to think our commitment to high quality analysis, brought us to the attention of the organizers of the Consumer Electronics Show. They invited us to record an episode on site and have provided this nice studio with uh, which we are in right now. Special thanks to Pam Golden for reaching out to us and Robbie Lissette for arranging the logistics. CES completely takes over and basically completely overwhelms Las Vegas. The lines for taxis, buses, any form of public transportation are too long to bother with. But because the roads are almost impassable as well around any major destination, it brings about a certain democratization of the environment. And by that, I mean that the types of people who are used to being whisked along in the fast lane of roads, airports, and life in general are reduced, uh, thanks to really the overwhelmed infrastructure, to join the masses. So unless you hunker down in a single hotel and are working mainly out of your uh, dedicated conference rooms and suites inside that hotel, you need to hoof it with the rest of the poor huddled uh, masses yearning to breathe tech. And when I say the city is taken over, I really mean taken over. All three halls of the massive Vegas Convention Center are taken over by this show. Uh, this is also true for every major hotel in Las Vegas, all of them. And to give you a sense of the size of just a convention center where we've uh, spent all of today, let me point the following. This is where my kids once participated in a basketball tournament where 40 basketball courts were in operation simult simultaneously in just one of the five major halls. Some of these halls have multiple floors. There are also two major adjacent buildings amongst uh, the hall, the main halls themselves, and all of these spaces are carved up amongst thousands of presenters. There are booths uh, and there are pavilions, and they range in size from the kind of space you find in a sort of a Moroccan old town market to spectacular carnival-like spaces covering tens of thousands of square feet, which are showered by electronics and, and, uh, and goods and products by the likes of Samsung, LG, and Mercedes. There are spaces outside of the convention center referred to beaches where fleets of test vehicles are available for people to, to have some fun with. Now you'll notice in the last couple sentences we started talking about car stuff. You noticed I mentioned the Mercedes pavilion, test vehicles. Uh, wasn't this the consumer electronics show? The answer is it used to be and it still is to a certain extent. As the name suggests, when the consumer electronics show started about 50 years ago, it was about consumer electronics. Hi-fi stereo equipment, cameras, TVs, DVD players, and so on. Now, over time, it's no surprise to any of you that many of the gadgets that the show was about uh, have been subsumed by smartphones and online streaming. So your cameras and your navigation units are substantially in your phone these days. And uh, the functions of DVD players, for example, and music collections now are pretty much subsumed by internet streaming. But as you listeners also know, a lot of the smartphone and connectivity technology started spilling into other types of equipment, including cars and machines. Sounds like tech cars machines, doesn't it? In the case of CES, 
the machines are mainly consumer machines in the smart home category. Less so the jet engines and aircraft and industrial equipment that we've talked about elsewhere in this podcast. What's startling today, and especially startling if you haven't been here in the last five or six years, when smartphones, uh, which is sort of the point where smartphones really started taking over globally, is how little space, relatively speaking, is dedicated to the consumer electronics gadgetry that the show was originally about and how much the cars and smart appliances and Internet of Things devices have taken over. The exception, by the way, is televisions, which still command a huge uh, amount of attention and floor space here. If you walked around the convention center, you'd see a rough relationship between the layout of the convention center, or I should say the layout of the entities uh, presenting in the convention center, and the vertical stack of technologies that make up all the things here. For example, most of the semiconductor component uh, presenters are in the South Halls. You'll run into names like Intel, Qualcomm, TDK, and Vensense, which is the sensor manufacturer uh, from which we had an episode. Further north, you see the personal electronic devices, a little bit of cameras still, believe it or not, Nikon, and appliances, TVs once again being the big deal here. And uh, by the way, smartphones not as much because those uh, uh, devices have their own big reveal parties and uh, the big daddy Apple doesn't like to participate in these mass events uh, in any case. The appliance manufacturers have spectacular setups, over tens of thousands of square feet, where you can walk through deep canyons of TV monitors displaying images of the canyon, its waterfalls, and whatnot. The uh, assemblage of smart appliances from, smart, uh, from, let's say, alarm clocks that program themselves based on your schedule and, and outside information, you know, such as flight delayed, you know, sleep in a bit more, to refrigerators that can sense shortfalls and place orders, they're all on display. When you put it all together, you know, you have the makings of a fantastic utopian techno home where everything you need is either streamed to you or automatically ordered and delivered to you, probably via a robot. And uh, hopefully those deliveries uh, will include the antidepressants you'll need since never leaving home means you've lost all your friends. Further north, in the North Hall, are the auto manufacturers. Typically, they're showing off their autonomous driving and infotainment solutions. Although, as much as this show is about electronics, you can see from where the attendees are massing that they're equally enamored with the aesthetics of the vehicles that are on display. In the dashboard, there's a rush for the largest, most beautiful sweeping panels, uh, which will really rival the beauty of the, of the nicest TVs you could have. And uh, there's a big business brewing on how to monetize all that visual real estate. People like Toyota, and then Mitsubishi as a supplier are pushing things really hard in this direction. The usual suspect for monetization of that visual display is commerce. You know, letting your car find you the cheapest gas or the best restaurant and setting uh, the navigation address to get there automatically. And the future is literally here. There is a multi-passenger flying car on the display next to the Mercedes Pavilion. I have a couple photos and we'll try to post them into where we usually put the transcript on the, uh, on the website, which... Uh, includes the player for this episode. The northernmost uh, part of the convention center is strangely called Westgate. The occupants there tend to be heavily oriented towards special purpose autonomous vehicles, machine vision, uh, robotics companies, a little bit more of the futuristic stuff. But there was one entity at Westgate which is in the future is here today category. You, our listeners, know that we have for some time been proposing shuttles as a great near-term real-world application of advanced autonomy. Uh, the type of shuttles we mean that repetitively travel a prescribed route at low speeds, typically carrying people, sometimes cargo. 
We've had our eyes on one of these companies for a while, and I think we've mentioned them in some of our publications, and that is Detroit-based May Mobility. And founder and CEO, Dr. Ed Olson, a really good guy, was kind enough to give us some time. Let's take a listen. Ed, uh, tell me a little about where are we right now? Well, we're in the middle of one of our concept vehicles. We call it Myla 2. It's a low-speed electric vehicle that serves uh, commuter, commuter routes in downtown urban cores. Excellent. And from what I can see, this is a four-person shuttle. Is that right? Yeah, we seat four people. Uh, you can't see it on, uh, over, the, the, over the air here, but we're facing each other. So the front two seats face the back two seats. And then in the middle, there are 49-inch touch displays uh, that can deliver new services and value to our riders. Excellent. And I, it basically, if I were to describe it uh, for our listeners, it's essentially a very nice uh, golf cart. A uh, four-person golf cart, you know, the seats facing each other, as you mentioned, much nicer layout, much nicer seats, and then with a glass top as well. Is that, yeah, is that an accurate I think, description? I think that's fair. And it, it right. looks a little quirky. It, it's certainly not a minivan, uh, but it has a real upside. People, when these are out on the streets, whether it's Detroit or Columbus, uh, people notice these, and they, they recognize that this is, this is something different, and that's a, a real value add for us. The one we're on doesn't have doors attached. I'm assuming, especially when I'm looking at the map here, downtown Detroit, downtown Columbus, presumably it has doors when it's uh, running in, uh, in real Ab- life. Absolutely. <laughs> we, we're big fans of doors, especially uh, in the great north. Um, in this case, we took the doors off just to encourage people to actually come in and touch the vehicle. Uh, there's a lot of concept cars that are glossy and shiny, but don't touch. And that's not who we are. We, we build vehicles for real riders to experience. And that's what's always been really attractive about what you guys have been doing. You've been out in the field. You've actually been doing it as opposed to demoing it or talking about it. And that's really the big difference in, uh, in terms of what I've always felt was applied autonomy for, for in the near term. Uh, Ed, give me uh, the, the, uh, a minute on, your, on yourself, your background, where you're from. How did you wind up doing this? Yeah, I have a technical background. So I, I went to school at MIT, got my undergrad through my PhD there. While I was there, I started working on autonomous robots for the first time, first building autonomous underwater robots for the Office of Naval Research. Uh, then was a participant in the 2007 DARPA Urban Challenge. So on MIT's team, we were one of the teams that finished, finished the race. Uh, after that, went the faculty route, which was a real surprise to everyone because I was always running off every summer to do a startup of some variety <laughs> or another, uh, but got a faculty job at the University of Michigan, built a huge research lab that built amazing robots, and then uh, was principal investigator on Ford's autonomous vehicle program, and then co-director of autonomous driving at Toyota Research Institute. So a lot of autonomous cars, uh, but really got, got an itch to build something that we could put into the world that would solve real problems uh, using the, you know, acknowledging and re- respecting the limitations where the technology is today. And it made the most sense to do this in a startup. So in 2017, I started May Mobility. Wow, so that's so impressive. We're talking about a company that's two years old, essentially, right? Yes, that's right. How many people do you have? How many vehicles do you have out there? And what cities? How many miles? Wow, us. Yeah, so uh, we, our fi- first money was in the door in May of 2017. Five months later, we were operating on public streets in downtown Detroit uh, on a, for a week, pot, week-long pilot. Uh, at that point, we had 15 employees, so every, all hands on deck for that pilot. Since then, we've grown to 60 people. We're about 18 months old. We're in commercial, regular commercial service in two cities, 
Columbus, Ohio, and Detroit, Michigan, with two other customers announced in Providence, Rhode Island, and uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, so we have carried over 30,000 passengers in Detroit, and uh, we've driven rider satisfaction and utilization of the, the transit service much, much higher versus a traditional service. Amazing. Define, uh, define your, the problem that you're solving for us in terms of the routes, the speed limits, whatever else is germane to really allowing you to define down the problem to something that's manageable for today. Here's the pain point that our customers have. Transportation is expensive. And so if you are a transportation provider, whether you're a corporate uh, you know, VP of parking and transportation or you're a municipal transportation planner, the problem that you have is that you can't put enough vehicles on road, on a route, to keep the wait time tolerable. If the wait time, if you can only put one vehicle on a route and the route's running every hour, then you have this vicious cycle of declining service, which causes your ridership to decline, which means that you can no longer justify the transportation spend you've got, and before you know it, your, your, your transportation service dies. The fundamental value proposition of May Mobility is that we can provide three to six times the level of service to our customers versus a traditional human-driven system. I think a key point is that our value proposition has nothing to do for the customer with the fact that we're autonomous. They don't care. What they do care about is that we can provide better service, and the way that we achieve that is because we are autonomous. Exactly, and you are running routes, essentially like a municipal transportation system. This is not program your destination and off you go um, on, a, on an ad hoc basis. That's right, that's a reflection of where the technology is today. We'll eventually do robo -tax taxis and, and all the rest. But the, the reality is that today, those systems are, are not ready for prime time. One of the ways that we carve away technical complexity is by saying, there are some roads we're not going to go on. We're going to keep the speeds below 25 miles per hour. And you cut away some of that complexity, and you realize that, wait, actually, the technology that we have today can actually solve this problem. Excellent. And the way you're implementing the technology, is it all in this vehicle, or do you also install some infrastructure along the route? Yeah, so we, we take a, a, a slightly uh, contrarian viewpoint about how to build an autonomous system. We design our cars to be self-sufficient for about 95% of the time. But sometimes in an environment, there might be one intersection that's just a bear. You've got high-speed cross-traffic. Right. What most companies do in that case is they'll put an increasingly exotic sensors on the roof of their car, drives up the cost of the vehicle, drives up the cost of the service, and means that we're no longer satisfying the customer's problem. What we'll do is we'll put a sensor in the environment. We'll bolt, bolt a radar or a camera onto a post, and that allows us to continue to build very low-cost vehicles, but still have the sensor data that allows us to handle those situations safely. Outstanding, outstanding. Tell me a little bit about your investors, uh, where you're headed next. Yeah, so we have uh, uh, 18 months, we've raised about $11.5 million in total. So everything we've done here, we've done for about $10.5 million. Wow. Our last round was led by Toyota AI Ventures and BMW I Ventures. Beautiful. And uh, obviously we're really excited to have the support of, of two of the, great, of the world's great automakers. That is very, very impressive. And um, to what extent do those partnerships uh, do those partnerships ever limit you at all, or are they structured in a way where it's all positive? Those are clean deals, uh, but they, they give us access to really smart people, but also the vehicle platforms that those companies build. So it's a, it's a great, positive relationship. 
So our listeners tend to be executives and investors. There's nothing in your current investor group that would limit any particular corporate or other investor for, uh, for having a reason to talk to you. Definitely not. Absolutely. And we continue to talk to other OEMs. Uh, we think that there's going to be lots of different vehicles and different products that we're going to build. And we see uh, May Mobility as a, as a company that could work with a lot of strategics. Great. Ed, you've been wonderful. Is there anything else you'd like to add? The one thing that I think is most exciting about what we're doing is that May operates the only autonomous vehicle service in the country where anyone can just walk up without an NDA or without a liability waiver and experience autonomous technology. That's in Columbus, Ohio. We operate from 7 a.m. to 10 p.m., seven days a week. Uh, I hope everybody gets a chance to go and see it. Bravo. Bravo, Riddy. It's been uh, really fun watching you guys over the last couple of years and just watching the speed with which you've, made, uh, which you've made progress. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. When you're one of 200,000 people at the show here, you don't expect to run into too many people you know. But it does happen to me a few times a day here at CES. Uh, maybe what that really means is I've been doing this thing for too long and uh, feel free to send me career advice via LinkedIn. But uh, it's a particular pleasure when you run into someone you really like, such as Pete Boney, who is also at one of the top artificial intelligence chip companies in Silicon Valley, and who's been coming here long enough where he can give us a sense of the show's history. Pete was kind enough to sit down with us in our studio for a few minutes. Let's take a listen. Right now, he's with a company called Novumind. It's one of those outstanding AI chip companies. Last year at CES, they, um, uh, Pete, correct me if I'm wrong, I, I guess I could call it a prototype. Uh, right. You uh, demoed a prototype, and uh, things went very well for it. They have now have a working chip. This time back at CES, they're being wined and dined by some of the big companies around here who want to put their chip to, uh, chip to work. Pete is one of the more experienced executives that you'll uh, run into in Silicon Valley, and he is a uh, veteran, and I thought it would be great to get a little bit of a history from Pete where it is, where it's come, and, and how he feels things have gotten better or, uh, or not. Pete, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, Ali, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And, and isn't it great to just sit down for a few minutes after a... <laughs> it's lovely to put up your feet, yeah. <laughs> That's right, that 10 hours of running. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about what your uh, background is, maybe just 30 seconds, and then give us a few minutes on what you're up to today, Novomind, because I know that's one of the really, probably the, one of the most interesting AI companies out there. Well, sure, Ali. Well, as you know, I've been around Silicon Valley and technology for a number of years, both as an operator in companies and a founder of a couple of startups and also as a VC investor. These days, I'm working at Novomind, helping the CEO with strategy and go-to-market strategy in particular. And it's an exciting company. As you know, we've got the industry's most power-efficient AI processor chip for inference. So as the world moves towards deployment of artificial intelligence, out at the edge of the network where all the data is, for example, to transform an ordinary camera into an artificial intelligence camera that doesn't just give you a video output, but it tells you what it's seeing, that's a need for embedding AI inference intelligence into a tight spot, operating it at just hundreds of milliwatts of power, and having it perform some very sophisticated computation. So that's what our chip does. It's, it's definitely a very hot, very interesting area. And that's one of the things that I'm doing here at CES is talking to people who have applications for that chip. 
and just walking around CES, it doesn't, there doesn't seem to be any shortage of applications for uh, analyzing video and audio and doing right. something more with it, right? right? And I think part of the challenge would be, uh, boy, and our listeners are getting a real blast, uh, so to speak, of uh, what's going on in the background here at CES. This is one of the uh, car audio companies that's showing yeah. off its products in the background. Yeah. But one of the, there's no shortage of, of um, opportunities to process audio and video in particular. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, the, the blast that we just heard from uh, our next door neighbor here, the, the next booth, this will be an example of a real world problem where in real time, a human has no difficulty distinguishing your speech from the background noise. And so it doesn't, doesn't bother me at all. I was right. focused on what you were saying. And you can train an AI inference engine with convolutional neural networks to do that kind of thing. And there are all kinds of applications like that where people would want to embed this processing power. But unfortunately, to do it, you need a lot of processing power. Right. And people look at using expensive GPUs from NVIDIA and things like that. If you want to accomplish this function without spending $1,000 on a chip, and if you want to operate the chip at just a few watts, you need a new kind of solution. And that's what we're working on. And so it's, it's very exciting to, uh, to have that. Absolutely. We ran into each other at the uh, Samsung booth. Yeah. And just look at the issue there, right? Yeah. They have these mind-boggling, beautiful, beautiful, high-resolution screens, really reality resolution, yeah. Yeah. but they don't have content for it. Exactly. So to take existing content, have it intelligently upscaled to show off the screen is a perfect example for what yes. you're up to these days. That's right. Great. All right, well, let's talk a little bit about the show that we uh, both have met each other, uh, both run into each other here, CES. I think you were mentioning that you started, uh, maybe actually remember uh, attending a CES in Chicago. Is that right? Well, that's right. And uh, forgive me, I don't recall the name back then. It might have been Consumer Electronics Show or something like that. And it was in Chicago. And it was probably in the uh, early 90s when I was in the voice processing industry. I remember that well, and since then, I couldn't tell you how many of the CES events I've been to, but it's been a bunch. <laughs> and I've, I've been here in various capacities. I've been manning a booth. I have been here as a board member of a company to look at their booth and see what kind of traffic they're getting. I've been here as a venture investor, just kind of scouting out some of the new things and some of the startups that are being featured. Um, so I've been here in various capacities over the years, and uh, I look forward to coming every year now. It's, it's a place to come and see what's new and some of the industry themes, and, and frankly, to see some of the early themes or some of the disruptive technologies that might be percolating up and maybe haven't hit mainstream yet, but you can see the early renditions of those technologies, and then years later, they pop into the mainstream. So it's, uh, it's quite an event. Uh, let me ask you this, when you first started these, uh, uh, going to these shows, was it really about consumer electronics or did it have as much of the other stuff, the industrial IoT, the, the, the vehicles and the automobiles that it does now? Uh, so the, uh, the auto industry, I think, has been uh, recently involved in CES. I don't recall that way back then. And that's an example of one of the uh, sort of the secular themes, if you will, of of uh, things that you see here. But uh, I do recall both consumer and enterprise and industrial kinds of things in the past. So for example, 
in my voice telecom, voice processing days. Uh, I might have been here a couple of times looking at uh, digital phones, voice over IP, desktop business phones. Now that would definitely not be uh, a popular thing in 2019, but a couple of decades ago it was a very advanced thing that I needed to understand. And this was the place to come to see everybody who was working on such a thing. Interesting. And was it always, you know, in the, in the tech world, we call about the technology stack, all the way from the components up to the software and the services. Right now, CES has the whole stack. You get yeah. the semiconductor companies here all the way to the people who are wrapping services around the finished product. Yeah. Um, was it always that way, or was it something different, more hardware-oriented? Oh, I think uh, that's an excellent question, and I think it's always kind of a mix. One of the things that strikes me is that you see a lot of players who are at a very specific point in the stack. And CES is, I think, a great place for them to connect with each other. So I may stumble into a camera company from Shenzhen, China, that has a camera which has great technical specs but no intelligence wrapped around it, and they're looking for applications. And in the same hall, you may see a cloud-based uh, facial recognition expert company. And those two companies, I'm sure when they're here, they take the opportunity to talk to each other. So in effect, it's a virtual full stack experience for companies. Interesting. And what about the um, type of attendees over the years? Let's talk maybe just in terms of um, the, the type of person who's here. Uh, it's really not a lay crowd. I mean, people here are generally industry participants. Um, has it always been that way? And did it always have what is now a quite a substantial mix of uh, executive talent running around? Yeah, I think so. There's, uh, there's an interesting mix of people. Of course, the general trend is that everybody seems to be getting younger uh, to me at every show. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's true. Uh, you've got people working on the technology. You've got, obviously, people doing business development, uh, marketing-related activities. And you've got the executive crowd as well and the investment crowd. You've got people from the large banks who are here doing research. And you've got venture investors who are looking for emerging things. Uh, it's, it's an in interesting mix of people. What about the, uh, the, the sort of the origins or the nationalities of the people involved? I imagine many moons ago it was mostly American, maybe some uh, Japanese yeah. firms involved. Yeah, how, how, I think how, that's how, exactly right. Yeah. It was uh, more American. Uh, and some Japanese companies, and lately there's been more of a blend of companies from everywhere, and, and more startup companies also. More startup than, than it used to past. be. Okay, yeah, that's, that's an interesting, interesting change. What, what does occur to me is there are many things that you'll see at these CES events that are catchy technologies that you stop and you look at, and as technologies, they're interesting, but you wonder, uh, what's, who's going to buy this? Uh, what's the use case? And then, inevitably, a few years later, some of those things will pop into the mainstream. So an example would be uh, tablet computers. So many moons ago, there were companies like Go Computer that were working on tablet computers. The technology took time to mature, the LCD technology and the touch technology and the gesture rec recognizing software and so forth. And it was, when did the iPad come out? About five years ago or something like that. All of a sudden it burst into the mainstream. 
And so, yeah, you do ask yourself, if I had seen the technology right. earlier, could I have predicted that better? So I think there's a lot of value in that kind of thing at CES. The case is going to be, when will this become a mainstream product? You might be able to glean that by talking to the product manager, people in the booth, other people looking at, at the technology, and ask what they're thinking, what's their vision. And that takes time. At, uh, and usually it's a lot more revealing than trying to look through the company's marketing collateral. Uh, yeah. It really is a much better way of learning. Well, than, that's uh, right. Than, uh, yeah. than sort of what's publicly available. That's right. That's great. Uh, Pete, um, I'm afraid that our chance to sit uh, is coming to an end. I think we have to get up and start walking again. Oh, goody. What do you <laughs> <laughs> so I want to thank you so much for taking the time here, uh, helping us both take a rest while we okay. reminisce a bit over... Uh, how lucky we both are yeah. to have been attending these events for some time. Well, it's my pleasure, Ali. Thanks for having me. Great. Thank you so much. That's it, dear listeners, for this special edition of Tech Cars Machines. Thanks again for the Consumer Electronics Show for inviting us and giving us studio space. Uh, we have been bringing this to you from the floor of the Las Vegas Convention Center, January 2019.